Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. To show his bond slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his bond slave John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads this and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and the one who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that during this time you would just uh, open our eyes, Lord, to the truth of your word. We know that this can often be a difficult passage and, Father, a difficult uh, difficult book, but we ask that you would just open our eyes to the truth found in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. So I want to gain a little clarity this morning right off the bat, okay? This is, looking at that first statement in Revelation 1-1, here's what we see. This is the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. Which God the Father gave to whom? Jesus Christ. To show to whom? His bond slaves. His bond slave, uh, or a bond slave in that time, was one who had gained freedom, but chose to continue service to his master out of love. And so the bond slaves that are being spoken of here are his church, those who are free in Christ, those who serve not out of obligation, but out of their love for Christ. Well, why show them? It says, because these things must soon happen. So just to clarify, God gave the revelation of Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ for the purpose of showing us the things that must soon happen. No other book of the Bible can be compared to the revelation. And that's really what I'm driving at today. That's the point. It is, it is the most misunderstood book. It is the most misinterpreted book. It is the most misused book and manipulated book. And from the pulpit, it is the book that is neglected more than any other book in the New Testament. There are pastors who won't touch the book of Revelation with a 20-foot pole. Now, in my study, just, just in, in I, one quote jumped out at me, and I wanted to share this with you. One quote said this, for its author, John, it wasn't a mystic prophecy of something that was going to occur thousands of years later. It was both a rousing propaganda message and a revenge fantasy all in one. So propaganda and fantasy, is that what we're to believe? Absolutely not. Why is this book so abused, maligned, and neglected? Because for so many, it is a riddle, famous words, uh, is a riddle wrapped inside of a mystery, wrapped inside of an enigma. And because of that, for many pastors and believers today, it is a closed up book. It is a sealed book. However, reading Revelation, that is the opposite of what God wanted it to be. And the confusion exists because in the past, God intended for some prophecy to be sealed for a period of time. Now, in the case of Daniel, you read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, the scripture says, and, and understand first of all that Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament. It is the futuristic prophetic book ending the Old Testament, okay? And so here's what it says, Daniel these words are sealed up until the end times. Seal it up, Daniel. Conceal it. Hide it away until the appropriate time. So why would Daniel be sealed and the revelation not be sealed? That's a really good question that I want to explain to you. First, you have to understand in dealing with uh, prophecy that it, it deals with dates on God's calendar. In other words, what comes next on God's timeline. Prophecy does not deal on our own human understanding of time and chronology of events. So at the time the prophecies were revealed to Daniel, they were given based on the major prophetic events that would come next that were marked on God's calendar, on God's timeline. So there's a list of things next that I want you to look at. 
things that had to happen, prophetic events that had to happen before they even got close to the second coming. All right? The first is the coming of the Messiah. What's next? His suffering and death. What's next? His resurrection. What's next? His ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. Next, the Holy Spirit to be given. Next, this revelation to be given to him by his Father. Next, the tribulation. Next, his physical second coming. Next, the millennial reign. And next, the final restoration of all things. So this was this to-do list that God had fashioned on, on his timeline. And all of those events marked on God's calendar had yet to take place. So when that was given to Daniel, all of these things still had to happen. In other words, Daniel, in the next few thousand years, there are many prophecies coming, one after the other, on God's timeline, and you haven't even reached his first coming yet. You haven't even reached the last days yet. So seal up the book, a book until the appropriate time, which is stated in the last days. However, it's important to understand that this book of Revelation is not to be sealed up. It's the opposite. If you look at Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10, it says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't lock it up. Don't hide it away. Don't cover it or conceal it. Daniel was to be sealed until when? The last days. But starting with Pentecost, we entered a period of time referred to in Scripture as the last days. All right? So important to understand. So, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, there are a couple of prophecies that I want us to look at today to consider one event set on God's timeline, on his calendar, followed by the next event set on God's calendar. The first, so imagine you're writing on a calendar with a big red pen, mark this date, Pentecost, all right? Verse 28 of Joel chapter 2. It will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams, your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, I want you to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. So that was a clear prophecy about a day in which he would pour his spirit out on all flesh. So if we look at Acts chapter 2, uh, 14, Peter declares that the fulfillment of that actual prophecy of Joel is Pentecost, starting in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the other eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it's only the third hour of the day, verse 16, but this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. This is it. This is the fulfillment. And then he quotes Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, on your sons and your daughters. They will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will have dreams. And even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. He leaves no doubt that that prophecy was Pentecost. You guys understand that? All right. So Pentecost was the beginning of the last days. So what is the next date on God's calendar? What is the next date on his timeline? Well, let's refer back to that prophecy in Joel and see what comes next. With a big red pen, we're going to mark another date on God's calendar, on God's timeline, obviously separated by many, many years, and starts in verse 30. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, just as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So, as I said before, and important to understand, prophecy deals with dates on God's calendar, marking the event that comes next. Okay? Prophecy does not unfold according to our human understanding of time. Why do I keep telling you this? Because we read, we read words in Scripture known as time texts, okay? And these can be awfully confusing if you're thinking in human terms. It describes his second coming such as this, near, quickly, shortly, soon, 
and at hand. For us, somebody says quickly, soon, immediately at hand, we're like, okay, it's, it's going to happen like today. Well, these terms refer to God's measurement of time, and that Greek word is kairos. It's what comes next, an appointed day that is, that is next, and not our measurement of time, which is chronos. We get the word chronological. It's chronological order, okay? And this is why in Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, Peter warns us. He says this, and he's very clear about it. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So why does he wait? Well, he waits because there are many who have yet to accept him, many who are yet to be saved. The Father has given each true believer to the Son. And then the next event on God's timeline, on his calendar, will not unfold until every single one of those precious souls are his. And that is why today we still wait patiently on the Lord because there are those yet to be brought into the body of Christ. So since Pentecost, Peter states that we are in the last days. If we look at God's calendar, there is nothing that must happen between Pentecost, which is the beginning of the last days, and the period of time known as the second coming of the Lord. Even today, today, there is not one single major prophetic event or date set on God's calendar that has to take place before the second coming. The second coming is next. Now, I, I want to clarify something here, and I even have a few pictures for those of you guys uh, who, who are visual learners, okay? You'll notice the vantage point of the prophet over here to the left. He's looking, and you see his line of sight, and there are prophecies. Each one of those mountains are prophecies, and for instance, this one would be the birth of Jesus. That's the cross, the Olivet Discourse, Pentecost, all of which were prophecies in the Old Testament, and many of which the prophecies combined when the prophet said it, it would combine them, making it feel like it was going to be at the same exact time, okay? But there are literally thousands of years in between. So these are what we refer to as mountain peaks, mountain peaks. So understand, while the prophet is receiving his vision, he sees these major events in prophecy, and these are the mountain peaks. And if you've ever been to the mountains and you're looking down a row of mountains, you can see the peaks of the mountains behind that, but you can't see the valleys. That's, the, that's why we call it mountain peaks of prophecy, okay? The, the prophet cannot see the time that passes in between. He just sees the major events of prophecy, okay? So thousands of years can pass in between those prophetic events. I'll give you one good example. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Well, when was the government on Christ's shoulders? That hasn't been fulfilled yet. He was born as a baby, but the government will not literally be on his shoulders until his thousand-year reign. You understand? When he's actually ruling and reigning. Okay, so what this creates is brackets of time. From the Pentecost peak until his second coming peak, we are in the last day. So just give you a moment to look at that. You see how it, these mountain peaks correspond with these major prophetic events. His second coming is also a bracket of time, and many accurately refer to events within that bracket as the second coming. This can get confusing because some people talk about the rapture as the second coming, or they talk about his actual bodily second coming as the second coming, or they talk about the thousand-year reign as the second coming, or they talk about the day of judgment as the second coming. You have to look at it as a bracket of time. The second coming is the same way as Pentecost starting a period of time called the last days. Do you all understand that? So the second coming begins at a specific time and ends at a specific time. Okay? So it, I like to look at it as an administration, like a presidential administration. The president gets four years. If he wins a second term, he gets eight years, and that's his administration. He's going to do everything he needs to do within that bracket of time. So with Christ, it begins with the rapture, and it continues all the way through his actual bodily return with his saints to rule and reign on the earth 
through the entire millennial reign. Okay? And uh, there we go. And, uh, and then it goes all the way through. And then once we get to this point right here, the final judgment, all things are made new. That's the end. That is that administration. You can look at that as a bracket of the administration of the second coming of Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, at least most of you. Okay, so I'm sharing things with you that have helped me understand this over the years, and hopefully it'll help you understand it as well, because people, even like Chris and I were discussing the song that we sang, it references things that are going to happen in various points in that entire bracket of time, so sometimes people can get really, really confused, okay? So I said all of that to say this, all right? Uh, there is nothing else listed on God's to-do list as there was in Daniel. And that's why Revelation is not to be sealed up as Daniel was. If you understand that, can I get an amen? amen. All right. So the revelation of Jesus Christ reveals Jesus and other themes in a way that is incomparable in any other book of the Bible. No book of the Bible reveals more of the glory of Jesus Christ. No book reveals more of the splendor and majesty of Jesus Christ. In addition, no other book twice proclaims a blessing for the reader if the reader will understand it, do their best to understand it. Because it is not to be sealed, that is a blessing for us. It is a great hope that we can read Revelation and try our best to understand it, and, and, we, and you can. You can understand it. And as you understand it more and more, it is such a blessing to the heart of the believer and such a great hope. Revelation is the last book in God's divine library. It is God's final word. It closes the canon of Scripture, and there is no new revelation. Also, as Genesis tells us of the creation of all things, Revelation tells us of a return of sorts to what life was like in the beginning, but we're going to this consummation of all things, and Revelation declares that as it was in the beginning, it will be in the end only infinitely better. Okay? So what God created for Adam, the circumstances and environment for Adam, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be all of that, plus infinitely more, and, and it will be impervious uh, to the decay of evil and sin. Amen? That's, a, that's an amazing thing. So the miraculous creative power God exhibited in Genesis as he spoke the cosmos and all things into being, right? Physical beings, spiritual beings, everything into existence. He will exhibit that power once again in Revelation as the former creation comes to a spectacular nuclear implosion, right? And he makes all things new. So in Genesis, you have the making of the heavens and the earth in Revelation. You have the metamorphosis to new heavens and a new earth. In Genesis, the tree of life is revoked. And in Revelation, the tree of life is regained. In Genesis, paradise is relinquished. And in Revelation, paradise is regained. In Genesis, you have the dawning of Satan's rebellion and deception. And in Revelation, you have the decimation of Satan's rebellion and deception. In Genesis, you have the commencement of sin and the curse. And in Revelation, you have the conclusion of sin and the curse. In Genesis, death begins its reign. In Revelation, death will see its ruin. In Genesis, sorrow roots in. And in Revelation, sorrow is ripped out from the roots. In Genesis, the Savior is prophesied. And in Revelation, the Savior is preeminent. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no higher name. Now let's look at verse 4 for some context. John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So the first century context of the Revelation begins in verse 4. And that is, it was written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. And there were many other churches in that area. So why these seven? That's an important question to ask. And some would have you believe that the full context of Revelation was already fulfilled in the past. And that this book is a type of dramatic early form of Christian storytelling like the New Testament Apocrypha, which was written in that day. Now, the New Testament Apocrypha is basically a set of early Christian literature. And I use the word Christian loosely 
Um, but it dealt with the same characters and people that, that we know from the New Testament. They are fictional, historical, narrative stories, letters, or made-up adventures of the apostles. But what they all have in common is they are not in the New Testament. And there are very good reasons why. Um, they were written long after uh, the original Gospels and the original time period of Christ. So people came along better uh, later and said, hey, I think I can do better. And they would name it after an apostle, like the, 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 the uh, epistle of, of uh, you know, James the Greater or whatever. And they would, they would write these, these letters, and they had no connection to Christ at all. And if you'll remember, the canon was chosen specifically because these, these men were connected to Christ personally. Okay, So it included occultic practices like what we would consider a form of witchcraft, like Christians doing like witchcraft type things. And um, so they were rejected by the early church for very, very good reasons. And another uh, evidence of why these are not considered uh, biblical or canon is because uh, the early church, when they believed something was scripture, they would copy it over and over and over perfectly. And if they got one mistake, if they made one mistake, they would burn the entire copy and they would start over. They were meticulous about copying the scriptures. Well, these things, we found so few of them that that alone tells us in comparison with, with how many, let's say, of the, the book of James that we found in, in archaeology, then we know that that was actual scripture because of how many copies we found. Does that make sense? They copied it much more because they knew it was scripture. All right. So using that logic, though, in Revelation 16, 18, when John is inspired to write these words... And there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since mankind came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. Well, they would say, that isn't really what it means. Like, they're just being dramatic, right? They're just, they're just trying to use a literary uh, tool to make their point. It just means it was a really, really big earthquake. That's, that's how they approach it, okay? But for you and I to believe that this book is classified, you, you need to follow it through, through to its conclusion, logically. To believe this book is classified as an apocryphal writing, it forces you to admit that the angel that God gave it to and the Holy Spirit that was inspiring it were actually embellishing the facts, that they were stretching the truth, that they were trying to be dramatic. You understand? And so... We, call, we have a, a word for that. It's called lies. Like when you stretch the truth and you embellish the facts. All right. So I don't believe the angel or the Holy Spirit lie. Right? I don't believe God has a need to embellish the facts. These letters uh, were written. They were addressed to the churches. Some say in the order of the mail route, but I'm not so uh, sure given the, the roads that they would have had to use. Uh, seven in the seven churches signifies perfect fullness or completion. They were written in a specific order, potentially signifying the passing of time and the circumstances that the historical church has faced over many centuries, from Christ's time, from the early church, all the way to, to today. And we will discuss all of that in a later study. These seven letters are just a section of the Revelation. Before those letters, the overall context of the book of Revelation is based on this introduction that we are covering now, these first three verses which sets it apart from any other New Testament book. This book is truly something special. It transcends the era in which it was written into those seven churches that are mentioned, and it does so in a way that no other book before it has. And again, I will explain that more later on as we study. We just have to understand that the significance of this revealing, and be careful that we do not water it down, or add to its divinely inspired message that God intended to give to John. First of all, in his introduction, John writes the first two words which are packed with meaning. And, and I, this is where I got the title of the message today. The title makes it vital. We need to understand how vital the revelation is. It is the revelation. The very nature of this book, as we've already discussed, is that it is the revelation. It is essential to understand because that one truth revealed in those first two words unlocks everything that comes after. 
This is the revelation of truths that have been hidden, and now they are revealed to the body of Christ. And as we will see, the truth revealed in Scripture, uh, revealed in this book, are signified. We use the word signified all the time. What does the word, what does it mean, signified? Well, that's what it means, to signify. They are signs. They signify things presented in the form of symbols and figures of speech. They are presented in a way which disguises them in prophetic language that echo themes of the Old Testament. But it is interesting how it never directly quotes the Old Testament as many of the New Testament books do. It alludes to it, it echoes it, but it does not quote it. Now, if you've read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, this is Jesus speaking at length on the end times and the last days. And it seems almost, as you're reading Revelation, that John had that account in his own mind as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as you look at Jesus' description of the last days, there are so many parallels to his teaching and to what we see unfold in the revelation given to John. Now here's the deal. In the New Testament, we, we see that Peter wrote of the end times here and there, and he had warnings. We've already covered one of them, warnings for his readers. James wrote to his readers to be patient and endure till the coming of the Lord. Paul wrote on the subject from time to time as well of the mystery of the rapture of the church, about his coming judgment, and warned believers not to be deceived concerning Christ's return. John even wrote in his own epistles of his anticipation for the return of his Lord. Jude wrote of the fallen angels and false teachers who would face judgment on that great day of judgment. So throughout the whole of the New Testament, we have eschatological statements peppered here and there, but nothing like this book. It is the revelation, a bursting fountain of detail concerning the coming of Jesus and the events that lead up to it, and this is its revealing. The word revelation is apocalypsis, apocalypsis, and I know you've all heard the word apocalypse, right? So when I texted them and asked them if they had any apocalyptic songs, it wasn't in the context that we would think most of, of doom and gloom, uh, right, um, derived from the same word, destruction, but the word actually means to uncover, to unveil, to reveal, and so they sang an apocalyptic song called The King is Coming. He's coming, that's his revealing, right? So it's important to note that every time it's used concerning a person in Scripture, it always indicates that the person actually becomes visible. Someone who was unseen is now seen. In the case of this book, truth is becoming clearly visible. Truth that was hidden is now available to be seen by the body. So this word apocalypsis, revelation, is used for the first time in the book of Luke chapter 2, in verse 28, Luke 2, 28. And if you see how it's used in this context, it'll actually, in the context of his first coming, of his birth, you'll, it'll actually help you discern the same context in Christ's second appearing. And it's a wonderful story. Is there someone by chance that would mind running to get me some water? I've got a, a scratchy. Oh, Paul's got it. He's on his way. He's quick. All right, thank you. <clears throat> so as was customary... Mary and Joseph were bringing the baby Jesus to the temple, and he's when he was about eight days old, and he's met by an old man by the name of Simeon. And look how Simeon is described in verse 25 here. It says, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, that's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was looking for a Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, then in verse 28, he takes the baby Jesus into his arms, and he blessed God, and he says this, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. In other words, what he's saying is, is uh, I have seen the Messiah, and now I can die a happy man, a fulfilled man, right? I've seen the hope of Israel. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And there's our word, a light of apocalypsis, an unveiling, an uncovering. Literally in this case, his eyes were looking at the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Someone who wasn't here has now been made visible. 
Now the Messiah, the Christ, has been made visible. I can see him with my own two eyes. You understand? All right. So in light of that, there are other passages that mention this as well, that gain perspective and meaning, like Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Look what it says. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. Every eye will see him. Israel, all the tribes in the earth, in person, they are all going to see him. Matthew 24, 30 also alludes to this. It says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. You see the connection of the eyes and seeing him? And then in Acts 1, 9 through 11, references how the disciples had just watched Jesus ascend, like float up into the sky, right? Like Superman, through the clouds. They're watching him go, and all of a sudden these angels are standing there next to him, uh, them. And the angels declare to them that, quote, he will return in the exact same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, I don't know how much more clear you can get than that. We watched him leave with our own two eyes. We will see him return in the exact same way with our own two eyes. So let's look at a few other passages in which this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Apocalypsis Jesu Christo, is used. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I like how every single one of these passages mentioning the return of Christ is also mentioning the trial and tribulation of the believer and us enduring. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4-7. through So that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, the Apocalypsis, Jesu Christu. 1 Corinthians 1, 5-7, that in everything you are enriched in him, and in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. Apocalypsis, haste to Christu. And one more mention of this word, apocalypsis, is used in Romans as well, referring to the saints. And folks, that's you and I, the believers in Christ. Uh, we will rule and reign with him during the thousand-year reign. So Romans 8, 16 through 19, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So apocalypsis, the, the apocalypsis of the sons of God, that's, that's us in that context, the revealing of of the body of Christ returning to reign with Christ and the effect it will actually have as Christ rejuvenates the earth at that time. It is an unveiling, an uncovering, someone made visible, the shining forth of a person for all to see, the appearing, the arrival, the manifestation, even in relation to those of us who will return with Christ at his coming. In other words, the revelation of Jesus Christ will be a visible, real event in the future of mankind. It has not already happened. It is not a spiritual coming. And it is not an allegorical coming of Jesus Christ. We, as the body of Christ, facing the transient trials and tribulations of our time in this fallen world, 
had this incredible future hope, right, of his coming. We will either be changed in the twinkling of an eye, or we will die and we'll leave this old body behind and we'll go to be with the Lord for a time. Either way, we're going to take part in his return in a new glorified form when we're reunited with our body and it's transformed. So you remember the, the passage for the dead in Christ shall rise first. So they get their new bodies first. And those who are alive in Christ will meet them in the air. We're changed in the twinkling of an eye and we'll be caught up in the air with them. And uh, we will receive our glorified bodies at that time. I can't wait. There are many events surrounding his appearance. So what does this glorious book, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christo, actually reveal? What does it uncover for us? Well, I'm going to list a few things here. As we study the book of Revelation, we will see that it uncovers a warning to the body of Christ about being entangled in worldly sin and the consequences that come along with that. It illuminates instruction to the body of Christ about the necessity of holiness and honoring him in every word and deed. And again, not out of obligation, but because we're bond slaves and we love him, we serve him, we want to honor him in every way. The book exposes the need to fight the forces of darkness with truth, patiently, but in eager anticipation of his return. Okay, There's something to be said for what real, true, spiritual warfare is. Okay, It's not a lot of this, most of this stuff you see out there today, talking about spiritual warfare, binding this and casting that out and all that kind of stuff. Spiritual warfare are the perceptions and the speculations and all the lies that are being perpetuated, and the church, the body of Christ, comes head-on against those lies with the truth of God's Word. That is spiritual warfare. I, that's a little rabbit I chased there. All right. It reveals the final political, financial, and religious state of the entire world, the strategy of the Antichrist, and the rebellious nations that align behind him. It reveals the glories of Christ's coming kingdom on earth, his 1,000-year reign. It affirms the triumphs of all believers who have been killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will get their vindication. It declares Christ's preeminence and his omnipotence as his overwhelming infinite strength will annihilate all of his enemies at his coming. Sin, death, the devil will be destroyed in finality for all eternity. When And the Bible very clearly says that death will be the last enemy defeated. That's coming. It divulges the last chapter of fallen humanity. The book of history will be closed. Time will be no more, but a new reality beyond time will begin in the new heaven and the new earth. And folks, this isn't us with harps and wings floating around in the clouds. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It is perfection. We get to do all the things we love to do in this earth, uh, only without, the again, the, uh, the effects of sin on the earth. And never again will it be fallen. It will be perfect righteousness. Okay? Alright. So, the revelation is not an unsolvable riddle. It is not a mesmerizing mystery. It is not meant to be perplexing by hiding the truth away. It is an unveiling. It is the revelation. And John chose that word purposefully. John is presenting the account of the future of the world as an eyewitness of someone who has already been there to witness it. And he's writing it all down, given by God and this angel. Now, verse 1, Revelation 1.1 1, 1 says, God himself sent an angel to John with this revelation, and that is unique. That's unique, okay? That, we only see this in Revelation. Uh, God validated John's account by actually giving it to his son Jesus, given as a part of his inheritance as the perfect last Adam. So what Adam messed up, Christ is coming back to fulfill perfectly. The God-man, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is due the full inheritance from the Father. And he hasn't received the full inheritance yet. He's received a down payment. And I want to go through that. So God gave this guarantee of Jesus' inheritance in a few ways leading up to what will be the full inheritance which is explained in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I'm sorry, I know it's awkward when I have to take a drink, but I have to take a drink. <laughs> I could at least give you some good sound effects. All right. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us 
That because Christ, being God, became obedient to death, because of that, God highly exalted his Son, and he gave him a name above every other name. And at that name, on that final day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. It says those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Okay? That's, that's all three kinds of people who have ever existed. That's everyone. So whether you are right with God, you're under the earth, or you're right with God, you're in heaven. On the earth, you're still living. And if you're under the earth, you, you have been separated from God. But the down payment comes in a few different gifts or guarantees. The resurrection was the first part of Christ's inheritance. Death could not hold him down. And so a down payment as the firstborn of the resurrection, it guarantees the resurrection of the saints in the future. Then the baptism of the Holy Spirit was the second part of Christ's down payment. Now, at those whom he loved, he purchased and redeemed. And at the time of their actual conversion, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit into Christ's own body. And the Spirit of God, that spirit baptism, seals them and keeps them to the end. Okay? So if you are truly Christ's, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit at that time. And there's no way to get out of that. Okay? He seals you. And it's Him keeping you until that day. And then this book, the Revelation, is the third portion of down payment for Christ's full inheritance, okay? Um, this is the eyewitness account. Remember, John the Beloved, Jesus' most beloved disciple, describing in detail the time in the future when the Father, listen, he will take back the title deed to the earth that Adam lost in the garden. You understand? So what Adam lost, Revelation is all about breaking those seals and taking back, in a spiritual way, legally taking back all of creation and giving it back to Christ. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's what he's talking about. It's He's taking back the title deed from Satan when he will place every single enemy under Christ's feet. And it reign, the reign begins with a thousand-year period in which Christ will rule the entire earth in the office or administration of a man. And this is, how, this is where people get confused. Adam was a man. He was given dominion as a man. He forfeited and failed as a man. Christ will come back as the God-man, but he will serve in the office of man for a thousand years. That's the whole purpose of the thousand-year reign. He's going to fulfill everything that Adam broke or messed up in the garden. So Christ will reign as a man in the administration of a man, and the government will literally be on his shoulders as prophesied. So kings will serve him. And all nations will be under his authority during that time. And when the thousand-year reign has ended, Christ will give his authority as a man to the Father. And then will continue his everlasting authority in the office of God. So he lays down his, his authority as the second Adam or the last Adam at the end of the thousand-year reign. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's an amazing story. Satan is bound during the thousand-year reign. And at the end of the thousand-year reign, God releases Satan upon the earth again to tempt the nations. Now, the whole purpose of the thousand-year reign is for Christ to fulfill his side of the deal, but also to prove that man, even in the perfect circumstances, will still reject God. That Christ will bodily be on the earth, ruling and reigning, and at the end of the thousand-year reign, Satan's released on the earth to tempt the nations, and they will shake their fists in the face of a perfect, righteous God who is reigning on earth, and they will rebel against him, and there will be a final battle, and that's that. So that last thousand years is to say, even if God gave you the perfect scenario, the perfect government, righteous government, and you have all the food you need, and everything's provided for you, there is no death during this time, okay? The prophecies say if you die at 100 years of age, it would, you would be considered a curse. It's going to return back to the time of before uh, the flood, when they live to be 900, 1,000 years old, they're going to live through that millennial reign. It's a wonderful part of Scripture that is so neglected that I hope that we'll all get a chance to talk, and this wasn't even my notes, but anyway. Um, he will then continue his reign, his authority, right, his everlasting rule as uh, God and no longer as man. So I want to add one more observation to highlight the special nature of this book 
in contrast to the others, as this book differs, again, from all other New Testament books. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. All right, you got a few more minutes in you? Okay. So, the four Gospels, this is important to understand, the four Gospels are historical narrative because they tell us what happened, okay? It's a history book, and it tells us what happened. Jesus came, he fulfilled his ministry, he was crucified, he was resurrected, and then he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now, in the Gospels, there are some references to the end times, but the major emphasis of the Gospels is what has happened in the past, the work of Jesus, the redemption story. And then comes the book of Acts, okay? It is also historical narrative because it tells us the story, only this time the story of the birth of the church and the foundational apostolic age. And then comes the epistles, right? The letters, Paul, James, Peter, John, Jude, and the writer of Hebrews. Well, what are the epistles for? What is the purpose of these letters? They're all about explaining the meaning of the death and resurrection of Christ and how it applies to you and I in the conduct and the living out of the believer as a member of the body of Christ. It's our instruction manual. The epistles directly apply to our lives today in the body of Christ. So it would be right to say that the first five books of the New Testament are about the past. Then the next 21 books are about the present because we're still in it, right? You and I applying the realities of the work of Christ in our lives today by the power of the Spirit, the truth of the Word. We're living those out today. But the last book is primarily about the future. This book is prophetic literature about the things which must shortly take place in the future. And John is given an outline for the entire book in verse 19. I want us to look at that real quick. He says, therefore, write. Okay, what is John supposed to write? Well, he follows it up. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So three things he's supposed to write. The things you've seen, which is the past. The things which are, that's the present. And the things which shall take place after these things, that is the future. And that is the entire framework of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is what John saw. Chapter 2 and 3 is what is. It is the conduct of the church today. Those are the letters to the seven churches. They reflect the epistles. Only those epistles are coming from Christ himself. He's the writer of those seven letters to those churches. Okay? And then chapters 4 through 22 are the things which shall take place after these things. So, after the rapture of the church. By the way, after chapter 3, the church is never mentioned again in Revelation. Also, at the end of chapter 3, when the letters to the seven churches close, uh, he hears a voice that says, come up here, and he's taken into heaven to view uh, what's going on in heaven. Most people like me and people who are, who are uh, you know, believe in the millennium, we believe that that is signifying the rapture of the church. The church is mentioned in the first part, and then John is raptured, he is taken up, and, the word rapture is not in the Bible, okay? People say that all the time about, well, that's not even the Bible, neither is the word Trinity, right? But we believe in the Trinity because all the themes are there. It's in Scripture. It is to be caught up, to be snatched away. And that's what we see happen to John at the end of verse 3, or chapter 3. And then verses 4 through 22, the church is never mentioned again. And these are the things which will take place after these things. So futuristic prophecy regarding that starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 22. So while a portion of this book deals with what was, and a portion deals with what is, the majority of the prophetic book, this book is dealing with what will be in the future. So I want to close with a quote from a pastor that I have found to be a faithful servant of the Lord. is Dr. W.A. Criswell. He pastored the First Baptist Church of Dallas for over 50 years, and uh, he was also an expository preacher who spent countless hours in study of this book, and here is a question that he posed and some thoughts that I would like us to think through. The first time our Lord came into this world, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with his manhood. His Godhead was hidden by his humanity. Just once in a while did his de deity shine through as on the Mount of Transfiguration 
or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder, and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh, in our humanity. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was like to hunger and thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time that this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame, misery, and anguish upon the cross. He later appeared to a few of his believing disciples, but the last time that this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a malefactor, as a criminal, crucified on a Roman cross. And that was part of the plan of God, a part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our God. By his stripes we are healed. Amen? Healed from our sin. But then, is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior dying in shame on a cross? No. It is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blaspheming, this godless world shall see the Son of God in his full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of the Godhead. Then all men shall look upon him as he really is. They shall see him holding in his hands the title deed to the universe, holding in his hands the authority of all creation in the universe. Above us, in the universe around us, and in the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in his pierced and loving hands. My dear friends, when Jesus Christ comes again, it will be unlike anything this world has ever seen. As his glory, when he comes, will crack open the sky, and his righteous justice will permeate every single heart that has ever existed. There will be no hiding from his glorious coming. Every person who is in the earth, every person who is above the earth, every person who is under the earth, every created spiritual and physical being that's ever existed, dead or alive in the span of human history, will buckle under the weight of his infinite majesty and glory on that day. Every eye will see him, Every knee will bow, and every single one will proclaim and confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen? Let's bow. Lord Jesus.